I am more exhausted by working for myself than I ever was working at Bon Appetit. And I thought working at Bon Appetit was a lot. Hey, Bomb Squad, you're listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, the show that's all about women and food. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, coming to you from Brooklyn, New York. Today's guest is making her Radio Cherry Bomb debut. It's Molly Boz, the recipe developer, food video star, and former Bon Appetit personality. Molly's first ever cookbook, Cook This Book, drops April 20th. Yes, 420, and it's going to make a lot of people happy. From Molly's many fans, to those who nerd out on cookbook design. Molly and I talk all about her book, her love of eggs and roast chicken, her move to Los Angeles, and whether she'll ever return to YouTube or not. Today's show is supported by Crate and Barrel and Sitka Salmon Shares. Later on in the show, I'll tell you about a special Instagram giveaway we have going on with Sitka that you won't want to miss. But first, a word about Crate and Barrel. I'm still pinching myself that Crate and Barrel is a sponsor. I love Crate and Barrel and furnished my apartment and outfitted my kitchen with a lot of their pieces, from a much-loved couch to classic white dinnerware. And I'm loving the very chic martini glasses I bought a few weeks ago. Anyway, like the folks at Crate and Barrel, and I'm sure all of you, I'm a firm believer that every meal is a special occasion. Crate and Barrel has an incredible selection of beautiful modern pieces that will take anything you eat or drink up a notch, thanks to the timeless design and terrific quality of their dinnerware, glassware, and serving pieces. It doesn't matter if you're enjoying a home-cooked meal with friends or family or eating your favorite takeout solo in front of your laptop. I'm sure you can all relate to that. It all feels way more festive on Tabletop Collections by Crate and Barrel. Be sure to visit CrateandBarrel.com where you'll find so many great pieces at affordable prices. And by the way, Crate and Barrel is hosting one of Molly Boz's cookbook launch events. Don't miss her Crate and Barrel Carbonara Party on April 22nd. You can find the link in our show notes or on mollyboz.com. A little housekeeping. The new issue of Cherry Bomb Magazine is finally here. Issue 16, Sweet 16, is dedicated to all things Julia Child, and you can find a copy at cherrybomb.com. It's filled with recipes, beautiful photography and illustrations, essays, and articles inspired by the culinary icon. You can buy a copy, or even better, you can subscribe to our magazine. It's a great way to support what we do here at Cherry Bomb. And now, here's Molly Boz. In anticipation of the interview, I made some jammy eggs because I read how much you love eggs. I do love eggs, especially a jammy egg. What what kind of jammy eggs did you make? I did a six and a half minute jammy egg. And just ate them straight up? I just did a little uh, pepper and salt. Flaky salt, nothing special. So my favorite way to eat a jammy egg, like if I'm not going to actually like do it up, there is a recipe in the book for jammy eggs, but it has, and it has this like amazing nutty sauce on it. But if I'm just doing like a quick and dirty jammy egg, I do eight minutes in boiling water and then straight into an ice bath. And then once I crack them open, I do salt, pepper, and vinegar on the yolks because I find that like the vinegar brings out the like fatty yolk flavor instead of doing olive oil, it's just like adding more fat. It's really amazing. You should try it. Why are you such a big egg fan? 
I think they're just so versatile and they stay in your fridge forever. Like they're, I'm never without eggs. They don't go bad as quickly as other proteins and they can be breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. Like they're just kind of, you use them in baking. The egg is like a really magical ingredient in cooking. That is true. Are you raising chickens in Los Angeles? <laughs> no, I'm not. Although most people are probably, at least not yet. We just got, we just bought a home here and we're not quite at the phase of like uh, figuring out the whole landscaping and like who's going to live on the on the property. Given how many egg and chicken recipes you have in the cookbook, I thought for sure you would be working on a chicken coop. It would be smart. It would be smart. So why did you move to Los Angeles? It was accidental for sure. I um, was out here on a vacation with my husband's family in March of last year. So right at the beginning of the pandemic and we were out in Palm Springs right as the country basically like shut down during that exact same week and so we were living in brooklyn at the time but on vacation in california and we had to like make a game time decision either go home go back to brooklyn and like maybe get trapped in a small apartment there for who knows how long or extend our stay in california a little bit longer because the weather was nice and we were really digging it and since we weren't going into work anyway thanks to the pandemic we were like let's just try it and I think we definitely thought it was going to be like a month, maybe six weeks max, and then the pandemic would be over. And so we just got a rental, an Airbnb rental in the desert. And, and we ended up living there for two or three months, just like continually extending our stay. Meanwhile, our apartment was just sitting empty in Brooklyn. And then we got bored of the desert and moved to LA and continued to stay in LA and continued to neglect our apartment back in Brooklyn. And eventually we saw a house that we wanted to buy and we bought a house and then <laughs> paid a um, moving company to just pack our entire apartment up and ship it out to us. We literally have not gone home since the start of the pandemic. Wow. Wow. Well, are you loving LA? I'm so obsessed with the farmer's markets out there. People always say, like whenever I meet people, they're always like, they assume I'm from LA. And so I feel like I'm like in my place now. I've been wanting to move here for years. It never made sense. It was never like, I was never going to leave my job at BA um, to be in LA. So it was kind of like, it was just a pipe dream for a long time. And then it became a reality and I am loving it. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go back to your college days uh, because I read that you studied art. Yeah. So I was curious, why art and how did you wind up in the food world? I think I just come from a, I come from an artistic creative family. My dad is a photographer my brother was like an artist in high school and in college. He doesn't do it as much anymore, but our whole family is pretty creative. And I decided to do an art history major because I thought like, I'm a really visual person. Aesthetics like really resonate with me. This seems like a really cool lens through which to learn about the history of the world. It wasn't because I particularly was like, I want to open a gallery or um, work at a museum. It was just that like, I liked the aesthetic lens through which to understand everything around me. And so that's why I took a major in art history. But about halfway through my time in college, I, it became very clear that I wasn't going to pursue a career in art history once, gradu once I graduated, and that I was going to have to figure out how to be in food. And why food? I think I just had sort of an awakening in my like, late high school, early college years, where I realized that food can be delicious. And it wasn't something that I really thought about growing up very much. Like food wasn't a big part of my childhood. I mean, 
I didn't grow up in a foodie family and it just wasn't like, it wasn't as big a part of my life growing up as it is now, obviously. And so I just think I had, I had, there was like a moment where I realized that like food can be something so different than what I knew it could be. And a lot of that had to do with some time I spent studying abroad and in other cultures and um, outside of America. Um, and I just got totally obsessed with it. So you, you decide you're pursuing food. How, how did you even go about that? Restaurants was step one for me. I, you know, food media as an industry was something I was always interested in, but I knew it was going to be hard to crack into it just like out the gates without ever having gone to culinary school or had any experience whatsoever. And so I decided that I really wanted to brush up on my skills and like really and truly learn how to cook and be a professional cook. And so instead of going to culinary school, I, the day after I graduated college, I went straight into a, a job working in a restaurant um, on the line. And that lasted, that like phase of my life lasted maybe four years of working in restaurants. Um, and like, I think I bounced between four or five, maybe five years, four or five different restaurants from like a French bistro to like a super fine dining Michelin starred restaurant to a really, to a Middle Eastern spot, like kind of just like did the circuit and got my chops in cooking and then burned out. I always knew I didn't want to have a restaurant. Like five years sounds like not very long uh, of a time period, but like I never wanted to own a restaurant. I just wanted to learn how to cook. And it was like a great place to do that. And it was really fun when I was young to be in restaurants and be in that energy. But ultimately I kind of burned out from it and was like, I don't want to open a restaurant. So like, what are we doing here? Yeah. I mean, being a line cook is no joke. I mean, tell yeah. people what your life was like when you were a line cook. My life was like, don't see any friends because my days off are Monday and Tuesday. And that's when people are like getting back to the grind. And I go into work at 12 o'clock or 1 p.m. And I get off work at 11 p.m. or midnight. And so like, I'm not seeing them after work anyway. Our schedules are just completely, completely different. Just like every day is just like, the greatest hustle of all time is like the only way I, it's like every day you start it you, you start over again and you start with your prep and you get to service and then like you start this dinner rush and you get the adrenaline and it's just like go 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 until like you basically collapse at the end of the day and and there's like so much energy in it like I really I really do miss that adrenaline rush I don't feel it in my career anymore because nothing is as important as like getting a dish out the window <laughs> when you're working in a restaurant. But yeah, that's what it was. Just like an insane grind that was really fulfilling and exciting, but then also ultimately really draining. I think it takes a really special brain to work in a restaurant, both front of house and back of house, because I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I used to own restaurants. No, I don't any longer, but I would be in the kitchen just hanging out or saying hi or checking on people. I did not work in the kitchen. And once the tickets started firing, I just, and the orders were called out, it, it just scrambled my brain. And I never understood how the chef and the line cooks handled it. Not to toot my own horn, but I feel like I, I really like got it as a line cook and like could get into that zone and just tune everything else out and just like tickets, 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 tickets. And it's like, it really is. It's like, how much information can you pack into your brain at one time? Because you're juggling 
let's say eight different tables and they all have special requests and they're all coming up at different times and you have to keep it all in your brain because if one thing falls behind, everything is, is messed up for the night. And so it's like, you're like holding on, you like you're gripping everything so tightly and it requires so much concentration. And that's why the energy is like so intense in a, in a kitchen. Um, but then I think what's like the, the best part of the night is coming out the other side after the rush and the like release of all of that energy and letting go of all of that information, which is so rewarding. Yeah. Did I also read that you owned a catering company? Yes, I co-owned a catering company um, with a woman named Amanda Elliott. It was called Rustic Supper. And that was sort of like my transitional phase out of restaurants. I was like, okay, this is still cooking, but it's less, the, the schedule is a little bit better and it's less time consuming and we can be a little bit more choosy about who we work with. And ultimately I burnt out on that as well because I had to cater to my clients. Like that's what I was being paid to do. But if they wanted pesto chicken salad like that's what they were gonna have and I wasn't gonna get to be like snooty and turn my nose up like about it and so that didn't that didn't fit well with me and my personality but what did you learn from that experience so that that was kind of your first entrepreneurial experience right yeah I learned how hard it is to work for yourself and I think I've I sort of forgot about that experience and now that I'm working for myself again I am reminded every day it is such a hustle and it's so hard to say no to things. Like I, I really, I remember just being like trying to take on anything we could back then because we were trying to grow this company and we didn't want to miss out on any opportunities. And I really, I still feel that now that I'm not working at BA anymore and I don't have the like safety net and comfort of a company, you're your own boss and you're only as successful as the effort that you put in. And that can be very tiring. Like I am more exhausted by working for myself in this phase of my life than I ever was working at Bon Appetit. And I thought working at Bon Appetit was a lot. So let's talk about your book. It's so fantastic. Cook this book. Why did you choose that title, Molly? Oh man, the title, when I sold the book proposal, the title was Cook Like a Boss. And I think it's because in my proposal, like there was a phrase, there was a sentence in my proposal where I, I said the phrase cook like a boss. And my agent was like, let's use this as the title. It'll be a working title. Like it doesn't need to be the title of the book. And I was like, okay, cause I definitely don't want it to be the title of the book. And then we sold it with cook like a boss and the publisher was like, so into it. They were like, we love cook like a boss. And I was like, no, it's not me. Like, I can't believe I even said that in the proposal. This does not feel me. I went through a lot of iterations with my friends and family, just like it, it took months and months. I think we, we were like pretty down to the wire and it still had no title and the publisher was still like we could still do cook like a boss and I was like definitely still don't want to do that and I think it might have been my brother who in one of many brainstorming sessions who said cook this book although that's his story but I think I came up with it but he claims that he did it's called cook this book because I feel like it's very straightforward like I think that's what my brand represents is like it's bold, it's concise, it's straightforward, there's no bullshit. All you have to do is cook this book. I ha I've got you, like I'm holding your hand, just cook your way through this book and you're, you'll be golden. You know, it was interesting hearing you talk about studying art history earlier and, and caring about art and aesthetics because I love the design of your book so much. Who were the designers and how involved were you in that part of the process? 
So my graphic designers are Violaine et Jeremy. They're a French graphic design team. They have also a tight foundry in Paris. They're based in Paris. It's a couple. And my husband actually found them. So my husband is in design. And so he does spatial design, but he has dabbled in graphic design and his world, like if my world is aesthetic, his world is like aesthetic to a whole nother degree. And he like lives and breathes this kind of stuff. And so he was following Violin and Jeremy um, on Instagram. And originally we were going to just go with the in-house designers at Potter. And I felt like hiring someone who actually was like outside of my world. So Vila and Jeremy like don't do book publishing primarily and they certainly don't do cookbooks. They've done one cookbook, but it's not like their thing at all. And so they're really not even orbiting in the food world at all. And I really, I liked the idea of bringing just like a totally fresh perspective to cookbook design that wasn't informed by what's already out there because they're probably not even looking at what's already out there. And plus they're French. And how did this blue become your signature color? I had a blue jumpsuit from Ilana Cohn that I used to wear a lot. And then when we started working on the book, the blue was a big part of the primary color scheme. And then it really wasn't, I think, until we landed on the cover, which is blue, that like I, it became solidified for me, like this is the color of my brand. Yellow and red support, blue is the color. Um, because there were also versions of the cover that were different colors. So there was a yellow cover, there was a red cover, there was a like cream colored cover. And I think once we locked in on the blue cover, it was like, okay, we're moving ahead with this color. I love this color, this like Eve Klein blue kind of color. And it just, it stuck. And now I'm just like, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I like, it is me. <laughs> Do you know the code for your color, either the Pantone or the... I don't, I don't know what it is. I have it. Ben has it on his computer, like XXYHMG, whatever, something or other. But yes, we have one. It took out. a few years to memorize the cherry bomb pink. Oh, uh, really? You have it memorized. <laughs> funny. Well, after, I mean, once you've designed 8 million emails, you kind of have, yeah, totally. have it memorized. But, um, but I love it. And I love the reference to Eve Klein. Um, it's, it's, it's very cool. It made me think of the white stripes, you know, that you have this very specific totally. color theme running through the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's part of like, this book is, is coming out at a really interesting time in my career because I'm, I've launched myself out on my own. And so I really um, intentionally took the branding of the book and I'm trying to create like a visual world around Molly as a brand and not just around the book because I'm, I've just launched myself, you know? And so I think it's so important to have like a consistent visual language that's recognizable for any brand and whether that's like a big brand or just a person. I read in the credits that you had an editorial consultant. I had never seen that title in a book credit before. Who, who was your consultant and what does that mean? Andrea Nguyen, who is a very well-known Vietnamese cookbook author, did a a like cultural read on my book for me. And I hired her because I know that a lot of my food is inspired by other cultures. And it was really important to me that I pay respect to those cultures appropriately. And so she helped me look through everything and do like a sensitivity read to make sure that I was properly attributing and crediting 
other cuisines and cultures where it was appropriate. And it, and it was like, that was something that was really important to me throughout writing the whole book, but I wanted to get like an objective set of eyes on it. And so she's obviously been writing books for years and years and years, and she's in the Clarkson Potter family. And so she jumped in to help on that. I would imagine that's something that a lot of cookbooks, if not all cookbooks will have moving forward. I think so. I mean, you know, it's an important part of being a part of the food world right now. And it's a, it's like a constant conversation. It's something that I think about a lot and I, and I really want to do things the right way. It's surprising to me that that isn't a part of cookbook writing and it isn't like a qualification for um, like putting a piece of work out into the world. Like in the same way that you would for like a scientific paper, like doing your research and making sure that everything that you've said is sound and properly credited is, is just as important in a cookbook as it is in any part of academia. Well, it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see if others follow suit. Um, I also wanna ask you about the QR codes because I'm so jealous that you have QR codes in your book. I always wanted to put QR codes in the magazine, but we've never quite been organized enough to make that happen. Can you, how did that idea come about and what do you get when you, when you zoom in on the QR codes? So the QR codes were an idea that um, my friend Declan Bond had. We were having a conversation about the book and I think I was kind of saying to him, like, how do I make this book resonate with my audience? I know that my audience are, is like a very young millennial, if not younger po population. They're on their phones all the time. Like, I don't want this book to just be a physical book. Like I feel like there's gotta be a way to like bridge it in the, in the technological world that we all live in day in and day out. And, and he brought up the idea of putting QR codes in there. And at first it was kind of like, this seems wonky, like QR codes, like they kind of had a bad rap for a while. Like they were big, like 10 years ago, and then they fizzled really quickly and kind of fell out of style and they're very ugly. Wait, but you, you made them look cute. Well, yes, <laughs> it, it took an effort, but yes, we did figure out a way to make them cute. Um, the QR codes in the book are, are set inside these like cute little egghead characters that VLN and Jeremy designed because like we had to like figure out some way to make them more fun than just like an ugly scrambled box. But they, the basic concept behind them is that there are techniques and concepts in cooking that are really hard to describe in words. The reason that I decided to make these videos that are accessed through the QR codes is because I, I sat down to write a recipe and was trying to explain in the recipe how to chop an onion. And it's an interesting exercise. You should try it. It, take, it took me literally two full paragraphs because my recipes are written in like a very handholdy kind of way where I'm not just going to say chop an onion. I'm going to tell you how to chop it. Um, I'm not just going to say like, slice the garlic, I'm going to tell you to smash it and peel it and then slice it, like really lay it out for you so that you don't have to do too much thinking about, you know, about what I'm actually asking you to do. And the instructions to chop an onion took like two or three paragraphs, like because it was cutting it in half through the root end, peeling back the skins, putting them cut sides down on the cutting board, then making perpendicular slits to the cutting board all the way up from the bottom to the top and then going perpendicular to those like that da, 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 coming crosswise it's just like it was an insane amount of information for a very simple task which is just dice an onion and I was like there's an easier way to do this I'll just show them how to do it it'll take me 30 seconds and we'll put it in a QR code and and then I don't have to write 
two paragraphs about it, I can just say chop an onion. If you don't know how to chop an onion, pull up this video. And so that was like the first concept of the QR videos, which I was like, this needs to be a visual um, explanation. It can't be words. How many videos did you film? We, there are 21 techniques in the book. And so they're, they're not in every single recipe and some of them are repeated throughout, but basically as you, as you make your way through the recipes, you'll encounter these QR codes and they, you pull them up on your phone and they immediately take you to my website where they are hosted and it, they're all like super quick and dirty technique driven videos. They're not full recipe videos. The idea is not that like you then go on this like tangent or like YouTube K-hole after watching them. The idea is that you learn something that you don't know how to do and then jump right back into the recipe to finish it. It's just meant to support the experience of cooking through the recipe. Okay. And are these, I know you said they're on your website, but are they exclusive to people who buy the book? Yeah. So they're, they are hidden links. Like you can't access them unless you have the QR code. So they're not public at all. So you've got to get the book. We'll be right back after this quick word and giveaway info from our sponsor, Sitka Salmon Shares. Sitka Salmon Shares is similar to a CSA, except it's a CSF, a community-supported fishery. The Sitka Salmon Shares fish are wild-caught in Alaska and the North Pacific by Sitka's fishermen and fisherwomen owners and their trusted partners. The fish are harvested in season, traceable to the source, blast-frozen, and delivered to your door. I'm a proud member of their CSF. I bought myself a share earlier this year, and I'm excited to get my first delivery later this month. I also just signed up for their members-only cooking class. I'm going to learn how to make Vietnamese caramelized fish with seared sesame cabbage, and I am very excited about this. Sitka Salmon Shares has a special offer for all of you. Visit sitkasalmonshares.com backslash cherry for $25 off the first month of a premium Sitka seafood share. Also, we've got a giveaway going live today on our Instagram feed, so swing by Cherry Bomb by April 13th, 2021, in case you're listening in the future, by Midnight EST, and leave a comment for a chance to win. We're giving away five Sitka salmon samplers, each worth $139, so don't miss it. Now, back to Molly Boz, author of Cook This Book. What is the most Molly of the recipes? Oh my God. I don't know. I think this is the most Molly. I mean, obviously there's a Caesar salad in it, but that's kind of a cop out. Like, I think that the recipe that is one of my favorites and it's the first recipe that I ever developed for the book. I developed it when I was working on the proposal because when you write a proposal, you have to, you know, provide some sample recipes. And as soon as I like started writing my proposal, I was like, I know what the first dish is. And it's the pastrami roast chicken with schmaltzy onions and dill. I love roast chicken. I think people know that about me. My husband also loves pastrami. I also love pastrami. We love schmaltz. We eat a lot of dill in our household. And so like all of those things just came together in my head as like, why have no one ever like pastramified a roast chicken? Tell everybody what that means to pastramify a roast chicken. Pastramify just means like to to apply a pastrami-esque spice blend to the roast chicken or to the whole chicken before it gets roasted and then it gets roasted over these onions which soak up all of the schmaltz from the chicken and the spices kind of cook into them and then it gets finished with lots of dill so it's like a very sort of like jewish chicken roast chicken can you walk us through what the spices are 
So it gets rubbed in a paprika, brown sugar, cracked black peppercorn and salt rub. And then typically you would also see mustard seeds in a um, pastrami spice blend, but mustard seeds are not something that are super common, I feel like in people's pantries. And I decided to bring the like mustardy flavor into the recipe in the form of Dijon mustard and on the side for serving because we always eat our roast chicken no matter what it's flavored with we always eat it with Dijon mustard on the side I think it's like a pretty French thing but it just felt like that was the appropriate place for the mustard and what's your uh temperature and timing secret to a good roast chicken 450 I like it really I like a really really hot oven because I feel like roast chickens just never get brown enough um if they're not at like super hot temp 450 and then depending on the size of it like 45 to 55 minutes I also feel like most roast chicken recipes ask you to cook it longer than it needs to and I definitely err on the side of like a just barely cooked chicken versus an overcooked one, which like maybe is disgusting, but is just much more moist and flavorful for me. And are you a fan of spatchcocking? I do love to spatchcock. I actually especially love to do like half chickens. Spatchcocks, I feel like are, they're kind of like unwieldy and hard to handle. Like you have to have like two pairs of tongs and like grab both legs at the same time. It's like a little bit tricky. Um, and so normally if I'm doing like a crispy skin cast iron spatchcock, I'll just cut the chicken in half and then do the, the exact same thing, but you just like aren't flailing around with two pairs of tongs. That's a good point. Your answer might be the same as what the first one was, but what is a good gateway recipe to the entire book? It's a hard question to answer because I don't think that the idea here is kind of like none of these recipes are harder than the other one. Like there's not like a hierarchy of difficulty in the book because nothing in cooking is inherently difficult. Like maybe breaking down a whole animal is challenging and requires like a lot of knowledge of like the, of um, the anatomy of a, of a pig or of a cow, but like any number of recipes in this book is not particularly challenging. It's like, as long as you just follow the steps and um, listen to listen to what I'm saying and think about what I'm saying and you can do anything, you can cook anything. So I don't think there's one that's like the gateway recipe. The egg chapter is particularly important because there are so many really different ways to cook an egg and that I think that people get really intimidated by egg cookery. I think that people are like, they're comfortable frying an egg, but then like, if you ask someone to scramble an egg, they're like, oh shit, like, do I, when does the butter go in? Like, is it pan hot? Is it, what, am I using a whisk? Like what, it's like so easy to mess up. And, and then poaching eggs, like feels like, oh, like I would only ever see that in a restaurant. And so I think the chapter here that I like want people to pay attention to the most is the egg chapter, because egg cookery just isn't that hard. It's pretty simple and um, there's nothing to be scared of. You know what still uh, flummoxes me slightly is the Julia Child omelet. Have you done one of those? She, where she like shuffles the pan back and forth. And then- Oh, 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 like a French omelet. I guess, like a French omelet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you do the Julia Child omelet. I do the Jacques Pepin omelet. They're probably the same omelet because they were friends. But yeah, that was, I did, I don't actually have an omelet in here because I was like, I feel like that's 2.0. Like even I don't have a total 
and complete mastery of like the perfect French omelet. So to expect like a novice cook to jump into that just feels like maybe that's for book two. But yeah, the the like super quick and you're constantly whisking and then you're hitting the pan, that omelet technique is, that will be that, in, in my opinion, the most difficult way to cook eggs. It's a lot of drama in a very short time. Yeah, right? you're sweating by the end of it. Exactly. But I'm asking because we're doing a whole Julia Child conference. I know that. Jacques, and you mentioned Jacques. Jacques will be part of it. He's cooking with Angie Marr. Oh She's great an oxtail riff on the classic beef bourguignon. And you are doing one of your launch events with Jacques, right? Yes, I am so excited slash kind of nervous. He agreed to host one of my cookbook virtual tour events, which at first I was super bummed that I can't do a traditional tour. And then I realized like, if I hadn't have done a virtual tour and had been able to like go to bookstores across America, I probably wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to be in conversation with Jacques Pepin because like I don't know that I would have ended up going to his home in Connecticut and cooking with him and so I'm actually really grateful that this virtual tour is permitting me the, this experience and I am super excited to meet him I've never met him before oh he's fantastic and you have a few other great events do you want to tell us about them yeah, so the events for the virtual tour are, so there's one that's hosted by Now Serving, which is a really awesome cookbook store here in LA. And I'll be in conversation with Naisha Arrington, who's another LA native cook. There's a carbonara party that's happening and is being hosted by Crate and Barrel. And then the launch day event, which is hosted by Sixth and I, is going to be a in conversation style event with Ruth Reichel, who is another one of my culinary idols. And I lost my breath when I found out that she had agreed to co-host this event with me, like a never in a million years that I think she would. And I've just, she has just been such an inspiration to me since I was a child. And since I like first started looking at Gourmet Magazine, like it is, my brain can't compute the fact that like I could be at this juncture here where she would agree to have a conversation with me. Like I just, it doesn't even register. Ruth is amazing. She's so supportive. She's so talented. And yeah, I still have some of those old, well, I bought them on eBay, but I have some of her gourmet magazines and the covers were so cool. Oh, and was that it, magazine was yeah. to die for. Yeah, very different time. Okay, I want to ask you a few entrepreneurial questions. I know we touched on it a little bit earlier, but you are on Patreon. You have yep. your uh, look club, as you call it, right? <laughs> yep. Why did you decide to go on Patreon versus, say, Substack or YouTube? I went on Patreon for two reasons. So when it, when it came to a decision between going on Patreon versus using a different platform for newsletters, I did it because Patreon is much more customizable and as we were, as I was saying earlier, like this whole, I'm trying to really build out this whole aesthetic for, for all of the pillars of my brand. And if, and if like a weekly recipe drop and newsletter is one of them, I really wanted to make sure that it looked right and it looked good and it felt me and Patreon allows you to kind of customize and I could use um, MailChimp and do my own formatted newsletter. Whereas some of the other newsletter services are just like text format and it's not very visual. So there is that. But then the other thing that I think is so great about Patreon is that you unlock this whole like community and world, whereas a newsletter is more just like everybody's like in their own individual inboxes receiving what you what you 
sent out for the day. The Patreon, we're all on this platform on the Patreon website where people can communicate with each other. So like other patrons can talk to each other. They can comment and see each other's comments. There's like, there's a discord element there where people can chat with each other and I can drop photos and recipes and like, it's just a much more like dynamic version of a community for me. I thought like, that's the kind of community I'm gonna build is one where there's lots of ways to partake and there's lots of participation. So tell, so it's $5 per month, right? Yes. To support your Patreon. And what do people get? You mentioned that they get recipes, they get a newsletter. What for, and I'm asking, cause I bet there are a lot of folks out there who are chefs or other entrepreneurs or bakers who are thinking about doing something like this, but haven't taken the leap just yet. So mine is like, is mostly focused on recipes because that's my favorite part of what I do. And I think the like best way to get to actually like teach people how to cook, which was, is my number one MO in life. The other cool thing about Patreon is that you can really put any kind of content behind there. So Carla Lolly Music, for example, uses it for video. And so she puts, she shoots two videos a month and puts those behind the paywall some people do like audio podcasting and put that on their Patreon. Mine is mostly like a weekly recipe drop and newsletter. And then there are some other like recurring kind of like columns that I do. And there's the opportunity to poll your patrons and ask them like, do you want this or this this week? Or what do you think about this? And option for like a lot of feedback, but it is very flexible in the sense of like, allowing you to use whatever media you want on Patreon. And so, you know, who knows, maybe in the future, it expands beyond recipes and newsletters for me to some other kind of media. Any tips or tricks for someone who's considering starting a Patreon? I personally think that the, best, the, the way to be the most successful on Patreon is to actually like first grow your audience off of Patreon. So I think it's really, it's like a really hard proposition for people to ask them to pay for content if they're like, if like they don't totally know what they're going to get and that you haven't totally established like what your offerings are and who you are to them. And so I feel like my, my best advice is to like really focus on growing yourself for free, I guess, first be, and, and get people kind of like hooked on you and hooked on your content before you then ask them to pay for it. How about YouTube? Are you done with YouTube for now? For now, I mean, I think about it all the time and I do miss being on YouTube. I miss shooting video. The idea of launching my own YouTube channel and having to run that and manage that while I'm also managing Patreon, which is like totally a full-time job is so overwhelming to me. Like, I just don't think I can handle it. Again, like I'm only out on my own now for the first time and it's only been like six months. And so I'm still getting used to like figuring out how to manage my own schedule and prioritize things. And I've started this Patreon community and I'm really committed to making sure that it's the best thing that it can be. And I don't want to divide my attention too much. And I feel like a YouTube channel would require a lot of me. And so it's a, it's a, maybe a down the line type of thing. Okay. And you are so thoughtful about your business and how you're building and running your business. Do you have mentors or business advisors? Who do you turn to? I turn to my husband a lot. Like we talk about work all day long. I don't have like a manager. I have an agent. Well, my book agent, Nicole Tortolo, who 
was at first just my agent, like my literary agent. And then we've now been working together for like three years and she's expanded to, but to being my agent, just like across the board. Um, and she is so smart and insightful and she knows me and my brand and like what I'm all about so thoroughly after having worked together for three years that I like I, I really value her insights and so she's definitely like a sounding board for a lot of the decisions but it's something that I've thought about I think about a lot is like I feel like I want a like brand manager who is sort of has like the big picture in mind because I have it from my perspective but like I didn't go to business school and so I, all I can think about is like how do I want things to feel and like what kind of how am I going to be creative like in my career but like I don't have someone who's who's telling me like this is the right move and we should be approaching this this way and you should be looking at it from this perspective and I do feel like eventually that's something that I would like to bring on because it's a lot absolutely I mean you've navigated so much over the past year I was just wondering sort of just who was helping you who was advising you who you turned to Really what I've done is just like find the right people that are really trustworthy to put in the places that I need them where like I don't have the time and energy to commit to it. And so I think, you know, it's like the baby steps of build, building a company. It still doesn't feel like a company because it's just me, but there are like people who are really great at what they do, who touch all the different parts of my brands and I could not do it without them. When are your aprons back in stock? Okay, so the aprons are going to be back in stock on April 20th, which is pub day for the book. And up until now, they've been available only in exclusive drops. So I'll announce when they're available and they'll be on the site for like five days and then gone. But starting on April 20th, the core apron collection, which is the blue, the red, and the yellow are going to be permanently in the store. So if you are looking for an apron, April 20th is your day. Good to know. Can you describe the aprons for folks who haven't seen you in them or seen them in action? Yeah, the aprons are, so I have always worn crossback aprons. I have like, okay, to begin, I, I wear mostly jumpsuits. And so because I have a, I have like a hatred for like tight things around my, I can't wear things that are tight around my waist. It just makes me feel so icky. And so aprons obviously tie around your waist like the classic apron and I've just never been comfortable in them they get all like jammed up and I just like think they're unflattering and so I've always worn crossback aprons which are basically smocks the apron that I made that I designed with my merch team like exactly the way I wanted and it has two little pockets one on the chest and one on the hips which is like perfect for putting your phone and they're just very comfortable and they are also very cute, I think. Cool, well, I'm happy to hear they'll be back in stock and I know all your fans will be happy also. Yeah. Okay, let's do a little speed round and then we'll let you get out of here because you've got a lot on your plate right now. True. <laughs> what was your last pantry purchase? Last pantry purchase, uh, roasted sesame seeds. Most used kitchen implement? Microplane. Oldest thing in your fridge? Ooh, there's a jar of sauerkraut in my fridge that was there when I moved in. So it's not even mine. So God knows how old that is. I don't know why I haven't gotten rid of it. I was just going to say the previous tenant left the sauerkraut and you did not get rid of it. Yeah. Okay. I was kind of like, 
you might, I might need sauerkraut. Like it's, it's a handy thing to have, but I've also never dared open it because I don't know how old it is or whose it was really. I don't know why I haven't gotten rid of it. What kind of music do you listen to in the kitchen? My preference would always be like Motown and soul. I just, I like, I love oldies and I love like that kind of feel good kind of sound when I'm cooking. It's just like easygoing. When you're in a professional kitchen situation, what is your footwear of choice? Hoka's which are a sneaker brand, not a kitchenware brand by any stretch of the imagination, but they are the most comfortable sneaker on the planet. What is one of your most treasured cookbooks? When I was first starting to like think about cooking professionally and I started, I started a supper club actually back in college. And the book that I consulted the most was the Flavor Bible because I was just like, I wanted to learn everything about every ingredient. And I wanted to figure out like every kind of new fangled flavor pairing that I, that I could. Um, and the flavor Bible is such an incredible resource from that perspective. And I used to just like, just lie in bed and just like look up an ingredient and be like, what other wacky ingredients does this pair well with? That's so cool. Okay, last question. Uh, when everybody can travel again safely, where would you love to go? Oh, there are so many places. France always. I have such a soft spot for France. I don't know if that will be the first trip that we take. I really, really want to go to Tokyo with my husband because we've both been there separately, but never together. And I think that it is a city that strikes the perfect balance between design and food, like architecture, design and food. That's great. Well, Molly, thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to cook this book. It's a beautiful book. Thank you so much. Whether you just love recipes or you're a cookbook design nerd, I think it'll make both camps happy. Thank you. So nice to see you. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much to Molly Boz for joining us. Molly's debut cookbook, Cook This Book, is out April 20th. Molly has a lot of fun events planned for the launch, and you can check out mollyboz.com for more. Also, I'd love for you to swing by cherrybomb.com for the latest copy of Cherry Bomb magazine, hot off the presses, or you can buy a subscription. Thank you also to Crate and Barrel and Sitka Salmon Shares for supporting this episode, and don't forget that Instagram giveaway. Radio Cherry Bomb is produced by Cherry Bomb Media. Today's show was edited and engineered by Jenna Sadu. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget, you are the bomb. I'll have what she's having.